Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. If you go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo, you'll enjoy 10% off your first month. That's right, 10% off your first month going to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo, and you'll start working with a mental health professional in the next 48 hours. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know for me, uh, it was sleep. It was uh, poor cognitive frames of like this all or nothing thinking, uh, catastrophizing everything, uh, uh, forecasting, thinking that um, I just know that things aren't going to turn out and, and just these feelings of, of hopelessness and, and despair. But BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp is also committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed anytime. That's right. If you're like me, I, I've I got to be honest. I've been through like three or four different therapists, and I finally found one that actually can hold space for me and listen to me. I, I had one therapist where uh, they were like, their kids were running in the background. They were distracted. They they just they, they couldn't sit still. They were fidgeting the whole time. I was like, are you? And he just kept giving me book recommend. I didn't like it at all. But uh, but with better help, they have professional therapists uh, that's available 24 hours worldwide. Now, note, it is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. Better help is not the right solution for you if you have thoughts of hurting yourself or others. You can log into your account anytime, anytime, and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. Oh, yeah, because I definitely, the, the amount of time that uh, I spend working uh, I definitely don't like the commute to go see a therapist. I've had a t- teletherapist for uh, almost a year now, I believe, maybe longer. I have to find out. But I definitely thought that, oh, I need to be in an office. We've got to sit across from each other. But I got to tell you, I enjoy uh, the teletherapy. So go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo and enjoy your 10% off today. With that said, let's jump into the episode. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. <sighs> Today's guest is author, entrepreneur, Christopher Kajuski, and he's here to discuss his new book, Disconnected, an Odyssey Through COVID America. Uh, Chris takes us on a journey of when he wanted to end his life, he divorced his wife, divorced his business partner, sold his home, sold everything, or gave things away, donated, whatever, and had plans on ending his life, and then how he found his way back and the lessons that he's learned in that time. In regards to the audio on this one, Chris is in Tijuana, so the audio will um, glitch, the Wi-Fi glitches a little bit, not so much to where uh, you can't understand what's happening. And also, Chris has a speech impediment. He stutters. So there may be times where you think the, the audio is cut, but it's really him collecting the, the words. Um, and so with that said, let's jump into the episode. 
what what brought you to the point where you you wanted to just you, you you get a divorce from the wife, you sell your business, and then you end up you know you want to go on a beach and and end things there. Well, it really started before then, like uh, part of selling the business, part of divorcing the wife. I've thought about this a lot. Um, it really hit me about a few years ago where I was just faking it. Um, I was living with depression. I thought that I had escaped it. I realized that I had not. Um, I hit a wall of exhaustion. Um, in my book, I talk about how a very long time ago in a studio apartment in, in South Philadelphia or in, or in West Philadelphia, uh, a friend mentioned that I lived 10 years for every one year that everyone else lived. So if you do the math, I'm about 637. <laughs> um, and then I just hit a wall where I was just completely exhausted. I wasn't getting, I had two partners, a business partner and a life partner that weren't true partnerships. Um, I mean, there wasn't anything bad about them. I have nothing bad to say about them. Um, they just had different ideas about things, I guess, but I wasn't getting anything back. So there was no way to really refuel my tank. And I just realized that I was living a life of quiet desperation. I was going through the motions I had all the nice things that people associate with a good life. Um, I had the beautiful house, the beautiful car, the beautiful wife. And why do I feel like I'm using the talking head song? <laughs> um, and then I realized that it didn't mean anything because I wasn't satisfied. I wasn't fulfilled. Um, there was no happiness. There was no there was nothing there. Um, so I decided to disconnect from everything. It was a way to protect the people in my life because I look at suicide very differently. Um, I've been around people that committed suicide. Um, I wrote a piece that I can send to you if you want. Um, when Robin Williams committed suicide, because that triggered something in me because I heard people talking about the selfishness of suicide. Um, depression to me at its core is a warped perception of things. So suicide becomes a selfless act instead of a selfish act. Like instead of how can you do this to the people that love you? It becomes, how can you not do, do this for the people that love you? Um, because I just felt myself as a burden to everyone. And I was just really exhausted. Um, I mean, I felt those 637 years or however many years, I was a much older man and everything made sense to me. Like I, I've lived a good life. Um, I've had a good run. Um, I have accomplished a lot of things that a lot of people only dream about. So why not just push out there one last time, get rid of everything, declutter everything, uh, go on an adventure. And it was really like, it was to kill myself, but there was also, but there was also the chance like you do when you play the lot, or you have a one in a billion chance of, of hitting. So in the back of my mind, there was that, there was that lottery play 
where somewhere out there, I would find something, I would find purpose. Um, I would find self-actualization. I would find the ability to put the pieces together so that I was just not so damn exhausted anymore. Um, it was really the exhaustion that played into everything. I was just exhausted and I wasn't getting anything back from my partners. So I, I, I really want to peel back the layers on, on this exhaustion because I, I, this is so huge. Because I, I know for myself, I'm a completely different person when I rested and had a good night's sleep and recharged and refueled and recovered than when, you know, I've been burning in midnight oil, you know, staying up late, waking up early, or maybe I'm, I'm you know, I'm getting to bed, but I'm just not getting quality sleep for whatever reason, not getting into the deep REM cycles. Speaking about sleep specifically, do you feel like you were getting enough sleep or just not getting or not getting enough sleep or getting poor quality sleep? Um, I really felt that I was getting poor quality sleep. Um, one of the things that I found five years ago, um, when my mom passed away, I was prescri I was prescribed clonzepam. Um, so I would take, uh, 1.5 milligrams before bed. Um, and it was really, it was the first time in my life that I felt that I was sleeping well. Uh, even my wife said, um, that she finally felt that I was sleeping well. Um, I was also a snorer. So I went out and bought, um, a snoring appliance, um, and that helped as well. So between the two, I was getting enough sleep, but the exhaustion, I mean, I do think that a bad night's sleep, it can, I mean, I found out on my trip and I write about this in the book as well, that if I don't get enough sleep, because there was a lot of exhausting days out there that the, that it compounds the depression, but the exhaustion that I'm talking about, it went way beyond a physical exhaustion. It was a mental exhaustion. It was a spiritual exhaustion. So, yeah, um, and I definitely want to get into the, the spiritual and mental exhaustion, but you mentioned an appliance that helps you with snoring. And I think that the, the listeners, especially the wives and girlfriends out there, would love <laughs> to know what appliance you found, because I have sleep apnea and I use okay, an appliance yep. also. So what appliance could you, I mean, could you give us a specific name and yeah, how sure. you stumbled upon this? Yeah, well, um, I work in the industry. I'm an orth I was an orthodontic laboratory owner. So I've tried a bunch of different snoring appliances. The one that I found that I like the best is the DSAD, D-S-A-D from Panthera. Um, but they also sell a cheaper one. I forget what it's called. But if you go to any um, but I but just like one of the biggest segments. Um, one of the quickest growing segments of the dental profession is uh, sleep medicine. So if you go to any specialist out there, they're going to have a list of various appliances at various prices. Um, because all that the basic appliance does, like the, the DSAD, is that it moves the lower jaw slightly forward. 
um, which opens up the airway, which allows you to breathe. It, 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 it's a very slight, slight movement, but that's one of the therapies. Um, and the DSAT, especially, um, it's FDA certified for mild to moderate sleep apnea as well. And did you have to do a sleep test and have that fitted by uh, a dentist or some type of sleep doctor? Or is that something you just order off Amazon? No, um, it definitely has to be done by a doctor. Um, they do sell them off of Amazon and they do have the do-it-yourself kits, which being in the profession for as long as I am, I am firmly against. Um, it's best to have it done by the doctor. Um, I do know that the DSAT, especially, it's exciting for dentists because of its FDA approval. It's covered by medical insurance, not dental insurance. So the medical insurance, as you may know, is way, way better than the dental insurance. <laughs> Absolutely. But I do highly recommend going through a professional. And have you have you changed anything else about your sleeping habits to improve your sleep besides the DSAD? Like I know some people use an incline pillow or the temperature of their rooms. I wouldn't say that I've really like changed any habits. Um, I've cut down on my caffeine a lot. Um, I mean, I was the original coffee guy. I mean, I'm I'm not sure a lot of your list 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 sinners may be too young to remember, but when AOL first came out, I was coffee guy at AOL.com without any numbers. So I was the original. <laughs> so I drank massive amounts of coffee all my life. And I've learned that I really need to stop drinking at about two or 3 PM or else it will affect my sleep. So talk to me about um, the the um, the mental and emotional exhaustion that you're experiencing, because uh, for myself, and, and I know it varies from person to person, ca I can't have caffeine because the the, the spike in in um, adrenaline or energy or alertness that I, I can't handle the crash after. Uh, and I find that that has an effect on my mood. Uh, talk to me about the, the, the other type of exhaustion that you've been experiencing. Well, um, I guess that it really hit me about like three years ago that I was just putting myself out there. Um, again, in the book, I talk about that. I was living the codependence drink dream. I was helping everybody. I was saving everybody. Um, I was helping friends and, and my business partner and my wife and my stepdaughter and, and I was living for everybody else. Um, and then I just hit a point where I just realized that I was just exhausted and that I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, I've been doing it now for 49 or had been doing it. I'm 51 now, but I was 49 at the time that I went on my trip. So about 47, I just realized that it was just a soul wearied exhaustion. Just, I was just tired. Um, and there wasn't anything coming in. So, so I compared it a lot. Um, a few years prior to when all this happened, um, a friend of mine passed away from, from cancer, one of my closest friends from oh, um, high, high school. 
Uh, she was 44 at the time after a 15 year battle or a 14 year battle with uh, stage four metastatic cancer. So I saw her live these 14 years and it was a battle every day. So the last month was just, it was pretty awful. I sat with her in, in the hospital room. I was reading to her um, and I was just praying that the pain meds were doing what they were supposed to do. Um, and then, so that all just kind of like welled up in my head where I was comparing depression to the cancer. Uh, depression is a cancer of the soul. So why not just end it? Like, do you really, like how much do you really keep on pushing forward? Like, what is the point of pushing forward? If I'm only living my life for other people, then there really is no point. Um, like a lot of people I've spoken to about my suicidal thoughts and, and the whole point of suicide and they've gotten after me and they're like, we love you and we'll be hurt. And, and my reply was always, well, my internal reply, not my verbal reply. <laughs> um, but my internal reply was more along the line of you people suck. <laughs> I love you, but I mean, is that fulfilling for you that I live this torturous existence just so that you won't miss me? Um, and that's the depression. It really warps your perception of how you see things and how you do things and how you think about things. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you're right. It's not enough to hang around just because you're going to miss me. And, and, and I think that this is where the, the, uh, the disconnection comes in, where your friends don't really know how to be supportive when you share your suicidal ideations. And mm -hmm. they believe that them and your friendship should be enough to keep you around. And, and I think right. what a lot of people, and, and tell me if this is, how you experience this also, Chris, what people miss out on is an opportunity to be curious as to why I might have these suicidal ideations to lean in and try to have an understanding of where it's coming from versus saying, don't kill yourself. We're friends. I'm going to miss you. Like right. to me, that response is selfish. Because yes. you you haven't taken the time to hear me and listen to me and let me articulate where these emotions are coming from. Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, a thing that helped me out a lot was that I did have some friends um, that did take the time to listen to me, um, that did take the time to hear me out and to hear my explanations. Um, but yeah, I mean, like most people... I don't blame people like um, the next book that I'm working on is about depression itself. It really picks up where this first book leaves us off. Um, the introduction is I'm sitting in my garage in Texas, uh, just thinking about just turning on the car, um, smoking a last cigarette and putting on some Pat Metheny and drifting off into an endless sleep. But not until I finished this 
I, I write. Chris, but can you re- can you repeat really that? We want to explain to people like what depression is. Uh, Chris, I'm sorry. Can you? Um, well, Chris, the begin. Yes. Uh, because uh, we had a, a technical uh, the the Wi-Fi cut in and out. Can you repeat that going back to um, you're sitting in your car? And yeah. Then- um, okay. Um, I'm sitting in my car in Texas with the garage door shut. And I'm thinking about just starting up the car, um, having one last cigarette and listening to Pat Metheny while I drifted off into an endless sleep because the pain was so bad. Um, but then I write not until I finish this book. So I'm still talking to a lot of people and a lot of people just don't understand because they try to compare what I'm feeling and my depression with their bad days, with their bluesy days, because it's the only thing that they can understand. So I don't blame them. Um, I don't blame them at all because chronic depression, long-term chronic depression, it's, it's, they, it's natural for humans to attach what we know to something. Um, and then, so all that they know is the depression that they feel when a parent might've died or when their pet died, um, or having a bad day. Um, for me it's, and for a lot of people who suffer from chronic depression, it's completely different. Um, it's like, I had tons of advice about go out walking, go out exercising, which, yeah, I know. Um, I mean, I know all these things I've been hearing all these things all my life, but when you're living in depression, it's just so hard to make that move to towards self-actualization. Like you have a blanket wrapped around you, you're tied in a blanket in this thick, heavy blanket. And you can't go for a walk. You can't apply for a job. You can't, like, that's where I was. I was reacting to things so I could react to the need for bills. I could react to things that I had to do. But I couldn't take the actions to help with the depression. And that's what I really try to explain in the next book about, like, what it really feels like. Um, Like, one of the things... Um, a story that I came across, like I was in therapy at this one point and I was talking to my therapist and I forget exactly what we were talking about, but I brought up my suicidal thoughts and then I just brought them up and then I moved on continuing the conversation that we were having. And the therapist was like, wait, 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 (laughs) let's go back. You're having suicidal thoughts. And then to me, I'm like, well, yeah, but I've been having them for 30 years now. I mean, it's no big deal. It's like a swarm of gnats on a summer's night. I brush them aside and I move on. And then I was like, okay. And then I tried talking about what we were talking about. He was like, no, 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 no. Let's talk about the suicidal thoughts. This is important. And then I'm like, why? It's doesn't everyone have these? (laughs) Um, And then he was like, no. no one has these. Uh, That's a sign of a problem. And to me, it didn't, it wasn't that way. Uh, To me, it was like my back hurting or my knee hurting 
were were a pain in my jaw. I mean, suicidal thoughts, it was that common with me. Now, I've gone months and years without suicidal thoughts, but then I've also gone months with the suicidal thoughts. And it's no I, I, I idealizations. It's just thoughts pop in my head that, eh, I think I ought to kill myself. But it's, and then I brush them aside and I do what I have to do. Um, in this last time, that swarm of gnats uh, turned into a swarm of hornets. And they're not as easy to brush aside. And the pain is just incredible. So that's where I was. And that's what I try to explain to people. Um, I mean, I know what I should be doing. I mean, I'm a smart man. Um, I know I should be in therapy. I know I should be exercising. I know that I need to uh, navigate the the medication. Um, I forget. I'm missing a word here. <laughs> it's not the speech impediment. Uh, the 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 medication maze of what works and what doesn't work. Because a big thing that happened, my doctor felt, my psychiatrist felt that I became resistant to the Zoloft that I had been on for 20 years. So she started to switch meds. Um, and I think that I'm still medication resistant. So like now I'm looking into, uh, I think it's magnetic resonance therapy. Um, or something like that. There are different therapies out there that are made for people who are resistant to medications. So I'm looking into things, but it's like, yes, I do know all these things, but when you're in the depression and your life is just compressed into a single point in time, um, and the depression is really all that, you know, it's hard to step out of that. It's hard to actualize and get help. You know, there's so many things you brought up that I want to peel back the layers on. Um, one thing I want to highlight is I find it fascinating that, you know, you mentioned living your whole life for other people uh, mm -hmm. and at the same time feeling like a burden. You know, those statements seem very contradictory to each other where you, 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 you've kind of made your life uh, about being of service to others. And at the same time, feeling like a burden. Can you uh, expand or expound on that? That how those two exist at the same time? Because there's so many people out there, myself included, who um, ex experience the same thing. Well, I mean, I do feel like now my new purpose in life um, is to be of service to others. Um, like being on this podcast is, to me, it's something that is fulfilling so I can spread the word about depression and suicidal thoughts um, and say that there is hope. Um, and I can take away from that. Um, but there's an unhealthy, it's, it's codependency. Um, it's when you're dependent upon, I mean, there's a healthy service to others and there's an unhealthy service to others. Um, I found myself like locked into a thing where I feel that it was just an unhealthy service to others where I'm just, I'm just being used. Um, and that is, and then the burden to others is the people that I have the healthy relationships with, where I have the mutually beneficial relationships with. 
So yeah, I'm willing to do anything for anyone. And these people are willing to do anything for me, but I felt a burden to them, not to the people that were using me. If that makes sense. Uh, absolutely. And and so what is it that you felt like you needed or wanted from your relationships where, you know, earlier you mentioned that you were giving so much of yourself, but you weren't receiving anything back. What is it that you wanted? What would have felt like reciprocity to you or what about that relationship would have helped you refuel? Was it about setting boundaries? Cause I find that for myself that, um, I have a, with, with codependency, the struggle is for myself setting boundaries of wanting say of when to say no and yes uh, to certain things and letting people know when I've, I've had enough of whatever interaction. What is it that you felt you needed? Um, well, I mean, you hit upon it. Uh, one of the things that I learned on my journey, well, one of the things that I learned on my journey um, I ran into a teacher um, up in Seattle. You know, this, 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 this wonderful woman um, who's a personal coach. Um, and then I started to learn about boundary trees. Even, even before that, I started to learn that I didn't have any. <laughs> I had none. So I realized that I had lived my life that when I encountered boundaries in other people that were actually healthy boundaries, that it caused me to recoil because I didn't have any. So one of the important things I think is setting those boundaries and creating healthy boundaries, um, particularly with the people that we love and care about us and, and, and the people that, I mean, the people that we love and care about and the people that love and care about us, that it's okay to say no, it's okay to say yes, um, it's okay to discuss these things. But um, a big part of what I'm trying to do now is to develop more healthy boundaries with those around me. And, and do you feel like the setting of healthy boundaries uh, helps to dissipate or manage the feeling of exhaustion? Um, I do, because with the unhealthy boundaries, I just pour all of myself into anything. Um, so that's where the exhaustion comes from, or that's where a lot of the exhaustion can come from. But when I set healthy boundaries, um, I can stop. I can say no. Um, and then, so it, it's, it's like, um, it's like a water jug. Um, I need to save some for myself instead of just pouring it all out when I don't have a boundary. Now I know that I don't have to pour it all out, that I can stop at a certain point and just say no. <laughs> I, I absolutely love that. Yeah, there, there's definitely a, I love that you mentioned that when other people set boundaries, you can feel yourself recoiling because it feels like rejection when yes. someone sets a boundary and being a, for myself, at least being a people pleaser, 
I don't want to reject anybody and I don't want anybody to feel rejected. So then I don't set boundaries because I don't want them to feel like that. But then I end up feeling exhausted as you have shared. How have you, how do you manage that feeling of, of rejection of what feels like rejection? How, how, how do you experience that in your body and how do you uh, reframe that or manage that? Um, well, at this point in time, very badly. <laughs> um, it's really an area that I'm working on um, a lot. Um, I just started to learn about these things a few years ago um, where I really started to understand boundaries more and that I didn't have it. And then I started to encounter people that, that did have that. Um, and then that was an interesting time too, because they had boundaries and they had healthy boundaries. So, and I started to be more accepting about that, that they had healthy boundaries, but it's sort of like looking in a mirror and not see and seeing something that you really don't like because they had these healthy boundaries. I don't. Um, and then it really took a few conversations with a couple people that I was getting close to, uh, to get them to understand that I was not attacking them. Um, like the person that I talk about that I met in my book, Justine, she had healthy boundaries. And when I first started talking to her about her healthy boundaries, she recoiled a bit from me because she got defensive because she thought that I was attacking her. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not attacking you. I just really want to learn more about this. I want to understand this more because I don't have boundaries. Uh, and then I'm like a child. I'm like a toddler. I'm, I'm completely ignorant of this thing. So, so just teach me. I'm not attacking you. I respect you. I respect your boundaries. Trees, but I want to know what your boundaries are and how you set them and how you live by them. Um, because she took it that I was trying to, I think that she took it that I was trying to attack her boundaries, to get past her boundaries. When all that I was actually doing is I was probing her boundaries just to learn more about them, just to understand them more. So it, so it could be a lesson that I could take for myself. It's I'm you know I've talked to a few people who have been married uh, for I like to talk to my Uber drivers and <laughs> I've, I've found great wisdom from them. If I had listened to my Uber driver ten years ago when he said invest in uh, crypto and Bitcoin, uh, I'd I'd be doing I'd be much better off right now. But I've also had an Uber driver talk about um, being married for I think he's been married for forty years, and he said. The number one key to his marriage is boundaries. And I was really surprised at hearing him say that. And then I, I've started hearing other people talk about that. And since then, I'm realizing how uncomfortable it is to say no to someone. Like now, I practice it and I notice my whole body like kind of cringes at like, I can't believe you're saying no. And like, not, and what I mean by that is like, typically I'd be like, sorry, that doesn't work for me. Or unfortunately, like, you know, just trying to like soften the blow. 
But now mm-hmm. I'm just like, no. But they also feel like liberated and like empowered when I say no. So it's just a weird mix of uncomfortableness because I definitely want to say yes to everybody, but no, because I'm, I'm so grateful that I'm not bringing on another burden. How do you, how are you telling people? No, are you just saying no, no, or are you like couching it in some flowery language? Uh, well, I mean, again, um, um, it's still a process that, I'm learning. So it's still a learning process. Um, I moved out to the country. <laughs> yeah. You're so, in Tijuana, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> um, so, so, so that got me away from a lot of people that I had to say no to, <laughs> but it's not, but I don't recommend that. <laughs> um, so I, I really suck at it still. It's still, I mean, I'm really bad at it. It's, I mean, people are asking me for things now and it's just, it's very hard for me to say no to anybody. Um, I mean, I got it to give so I can give, um, or at least I did. I don't have it to give anymore, but, but I'm still so, but just, but over the last like five years or so, especially over, over the last couple, I'm learning what the cost is to myself of not saying no, um, of continuing to give. Now, will that create um, unhealthy boundaries, like too stringent boundaries? Again, it, it, it becomes a maze that you really need to navigate that better, which is why I'm also looking into counseling um, and getting back into counseling just because I need to learn. It's it's like I I went out to my friends because I, because that's what really taught me about the partnerships that I had. Um, I went to my friends. I looked around at my friends that I do have healthy relationships with um, that I've had healthy relationships with now for 40 years and I looked at my relationships there and then I couldn't, um, I didn't see the same relationships that I was supposed to have with the people closest to me. Um, and that's what got me thinking. So I started going to my friends and talking to them about life and our relationships. And it's a very difficult question to ask because it's like asking why is water wet? Um, can you explain to me why water is wet? It's, it's a very difficult question to answer. Um, but that's what I'm going to my friends for now. Like, uh, my buddy, Mike, who I call Papa bear. Um, I've had some conversations with him and, and he's, and he's provided me insights. He's got healthy boundaries. He's got a wonderful wife and an incredible family. Um, and then, but it took a long time but there's a lot of people that I started talking to um, about our relationships. And again, some people got defensive about it because they didn't realize what I was doing, but I was asking why is wood or wet? Um, what's healthy about this? What's unhealthy? Um, and it's something that I really need to be exploring more in therapy. It's true because what I find is people who have kind of grown up, setting healthy boundaries and, and growing up in a household where there it was modeled for them 
it's natural to them. So they don't know how the, how the pudding is made. You know, it's almost like Michael Jordan is a great player, but probably not the best coach, which is why he doesn't coach because right. there's just so many things that are just natural to him and not that he didn't work hard or, or practice or, you know, show up early and stay late. But there were just certain qualities that he naturally had that um, that allowed him to be uh, the, the talent and, and gift that he was in, in basketball that he, he can't decipher versus someone who had to fight tooth and nail from day one to develop the skills and, and get to the Jordan level. Um, did you grow up in a household where uh, you felt like boundaries were modeled for you or where where did the 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 codependency come in? Um, I think that started when I was a kid. Um, my, uh, uh, my mom was manic depressive, um, who I call, um, I, uh, is called bipolar disorder or now, but to me calling it bipolar disorder is like calling your oldest friend drinking buddy by his Christian name. <laughs> um, it's manic depression. Um, and then she was really far off the scale. So on a scale from one to 10, with 10 being the worst, she was at 11. So it was a very dysfunctional household that I grew, grew up a bit. Um, that goes back to my entire life. And then, of course, that was used against me for um, in a lot of in a lot of the unhealthy relationships that I was in, because I did come from from I mean I've had healthy role model models. Um, I mean I come from a very big family, a loving family, but in the unhealthy relationships that I was in, I could they they would point it out. Well, like you came from this, so like you don't understand this. Uh, like one time, a very long time ago, I was in a very unhealthy relationship with a woman, and I knew it was unhealthy. And we're fighting every day. Um, we're screaming at each other every day. And I knew it was unhealthy, but she could point out to me that she had been married and that this is the way that it's supposed to be. And that what I was saying was unhealthy was actually healthy. So. <laughs> so, yeah, I could see that it's unfortunate that, you know, the, the, your what your mom was experiencing the manic depression then becomes weaponized against you and so you feel i would imagine you felt trapped by that but also like a need to prove yourself of like listen i'm not manic depressive i'm normal so then that that's that may be a, a seed of where the people pleasing or codependency uh kicks in where you're trying to overcompensate for the behaviors and actions of your mom. What, what, what where was your dad in this picture? Um, well, my uh, dad and my mom, they uh, got uh, divorced. Um, and then my stepfather, they're a very good man. He came in to the picture. Um, and that provided a lot of support. Um, but then, at a very young age, I was asked to be an adult. Um, like there were periods of time where 
I'm five, six year, years old and I'm trying to feed uh, me and my bro- brother because mom, let's be honest, was nuts. Um, I mean, she needed to go to the hospital. She needed to be taken away. She hadn't been taken away. Um, so I'm being forced into an adult role. Um, I'm taking care of mom. Um, and then I think that a lot of uh, children in dysfunctional households, they come up like that, where they're forced into adult roles. Um, a big thing that I talk about um, in many writings is that I'm still trying to tell the, the child inside of my, myself that he's safe, that he is okay. Um, like I still remember this one counseling therapy um, this one counseling session that I had years ago, um, and we were doing that exercise where you talk to the young child in you. Um, and then so the therapist, he said it up um, and then he gets me into the moment and I see that child. I see that six year old kid um, with the bad haircut and 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 the, and the skin knees and he's sitting across from me, and this is my moment where I can tell him anything that I want, where I can comfort him, I can say anything that I want. And the first thing that popped into my mind was, you got to get tougher, kid, because if you don't get tougher, life is going to suck a whole lot worse. And that was the end of the counseling session. I mean, it crushed me that that's the first thing that came into my mind but it's the first thing that popped into my mind like if if only i could be stronger i could have helped my mom more if i could only be tougher i could have saved my mom um if only i could have done more i could have helped save my sister from the stuff that she went through and the stuff that i went through and like i i became the savior arch archetype i think that is called where I had to save everyone. And I think that that's the root of my codependency. Um, and that's the root of, of a low self-esteem because I can't, I couldn't save my mom. Um, I mean, I was up against manic depression. Um, I was up against um, an illness that was completely beyond my comprehension and my skills and everything that life had taught me. Um, and when I failed miserably at it, that caused my first bout of depression. That almost led to suicide. But that's another story. <laughs> so, you know, right now you are, how old are you now? 51? 50? Yes. Uh, and, 51. And you're living in Tijuana. Yes. And, and so was the, was the move to Tijuana, uh, you know, a way to, to escape uh, having to say no to people? Or what prompted the move to Tijuana? And where did you move from? Was it from Pennsylvania? Um, no. Um, um, well, in the uh, book, book that I wrote, um, um, I, tr- um, I g- gave up everything. Um, I went on a cross-country tour. Um, I needed some place to settle after that. Texas seemed like a good enough spot. Um, had some fantastic friends there, so I settled there for about a year and a half. Um, and then the job that I had there, um, it didn't work out well at all. <laughs> um, and then I, um, 
And then I had a friend here. So I'm living and working in uh, Tijuana and in San Diego. So it's not like I ran away. Um, it's more like it was an opportunity that presented itself. Um, and then I'm like really poor. <laughs> so um, it just seemed like a good idea at the time. Because like, like I said, when I was planning on killing myself, I gave away everything. I wiped out all my savings, my 401k, sold my house, put all my money into this trip. Um, and then when I was living in Texas, I just couldn't get by on the salary that I was made, 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 made And I found myself going back into the codependency ways of helping out this business, this uh, startup and pouring way too much of myself into it. And it wasn't being appreciated or compensated. So we parted ways and then I was looking for another opportunity. And now I find myself in Tijuana <laughs> where I can relax a little bit. Uh, things are not as expensive. Um, I got a little bit of money uh, set it aside. I can put aside, so I, 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 I can start to recoup. So it's an opportunity for you to recover, regroup, and and uh, and get resettled. And, and so, what I find interesting is, in some ways, uh, codependency has uh, been a, a, a nemesis is a strong word, but it, it it's also been it sounds like a way that um, has saved your life in that because you uh, have decided to be of service to others. Uh, and to help others, it's gotten you out of your own uh, pain and struggle uh, by focusing on what others need. Uh, does that does that resonate for you? Um, kind of, sort of. Okay. Uh, to me, codependency is has um, has a very negative connotation. Um, I mean, I do agree that it saved me. Um, I think that a lot of the things that I learned as a child, um, I mean, I write about this too, um, about how a lot of the, how a lot of the defense mechanisms that we learn as children, uh, help us to survive, but then some survival skills, they become extremely unhealthy as adults. So what I'm looking to do now um, is get away from the codependency, but still have a life of service, which I know is, it It might sound like a contradiction in terms, but it it's, it's really, it's, to me, it's two completely different things. Uh, codependency is, I'm, I'm finding myself worth in helping others, um, in, in serving others. Um, whereas being of service, to people, uh, to spread awareness about mental illness, um, to help people. Um, I'm a mentor with these, um, with, uh, children and adults with speech impediments. Uh, to me, that's not being codependent. That's just finding a purpose in my life. Um, and people need a, a purpose. Uh, I think it's a healthier way of giving as opposed to a need to give, I think. I'm, 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 I'm stepping through, um, some uncharted territory here. So I'm just kind of like making things up, I'm not making things up as I go along, but trying to find the right words and, and phrases as I go along. 
Uh, I, no, I, I completely get that. The the needing to give versus uh, uh, wanting to give. The the needing is more of a sounds like more of an addictive quality, like you're out of control. Whereas like I want to do this, it sounds more uh, self directed or like a like there's an inner uh, drive for that. Like it's a conscious decision versus I'm just like reacting to it. Like I have this need and like, I, I need, I need to get my fix, you know, yes. kind of thing. Right. Um, you know, so your book, you know, disconnected an odyssey through COVID America. Um, is there anything about your story that we haven't talked about that you think would be of value to my listeners who are struggling with depression or suicidal ideations? Are there any, other coping skills or, or cognitive reframes that you've learned or just tactics that you were like, Oh, I, you know, I wish I had known to do this sooner. Um, well, I mean, there's a lot that I discovered about myself in the book. Um, again, that, uh, first person, Sarah, who I met up in Seattle, one of the most important things that she taught me about was the net. Um, and the net is the connections that we have in life. Um, she explained to me that she slept around a lot, um, when she was young, younger, because she needed that uh, intimacy. Then she learned that she could become intimate with herself that she had. And that's something that I have to remember. That's something that I always have to keep in the back of my mind is that I have this incredible group of friends and family, um, and they are my net. Um, they're my safety net. So all of the connections that we form in our lives, um, that's important. Um, that, that would be a, a takeaway from my book. book. Uh, the whole disconnected thing, I think, is where I was going wrong. I was disconnecting when I should have been trying to, re to reconnect and reconnect in healthy ways. I love that. You know, and I realize for some people, trying to connect with other people can be uh, challenging because it goes back to what we were talking about earlier is that you feel like you may be a burden, like, uh, I want to call this person, but they're married. They have kids. They're probably busy. They have two jobs and, you know, just calling to talk. I, I don't, I don't want to, uh, bother them at this point. Uh, you know, we have that when you're depressed, you just kind of think of the worst outcome for every interaction that you possibly could have. So I could see people not calling. How do you talk yourself through that? Do you have those thoughts or how do oh, you yeah. manage that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that the first big thing that comes with the prepression is the need to isolate um, because I don't want to inflict myself on others. But I think that for like years, I didn't reach out to anyone. And just in the last few years, I'm learning, I mean, these are people that love me um, and they've made it. And the more open I've been about the depression and the more open I've been about the struggles that even if they don't understand uh, exactly what I'm go, go, go through, they do understand enough that 
that I'm having issues and that if I do call, um, that, that I've set up like signals with, um, a couple of people where if I'm just calling to just like say hello or something, and if they're biz, biz, they're, they're like, okay. okay. And then I'm like, okay, fine. But then I can say, it's now okay for me to say, I really need to talk now. Um, and these are people I can call day or night, um, at any point in time and just give the signal that it's bad and I need to talk and I need to reach out. Um, but then what the net is teaching me more is that it's not about, uh, that constant connection. It's not about that instant gratification of a phone call or someone to hold my hand, um, that I just have these people out there that do care about me. Um, and then I have to go back to that net, but yeah, it's still hard to reach out to people saying I'm having a really, really bad day. I'm having a really, really tough time, 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 because I don't want to be a burden. You know, it makes me think about uh police procedurals where they have that board of that list of suspects on the wall. And then, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, you know, they drawing lines of who's at the top and you know, the, the mob, the mob family and all yeah. that. And I realized like for myself, that might be something I want to do. Cause when I have a poor memory, you know, de- depression and, and a memory of the people who nourish me and help me recover and refuel, I have, I have a poor memory for that. And for the people who have said, yeah, Leo, go ahead and reach out whenever and connect. I forget all of that. I forget <laughs> all that when I'm in the throes of depression. When I'm in depression, I, there's no one out there who wants to listen or talk to me. And uh, and having a visual reminder, because, you know, they say men are more visual. My, my girlfriend has a vision board of her goals, but I think I need a vision board of people who uh, who have shared that they're willing to support me and be an ear for me to listen to. Speaking of which, uh, Chris, I know you just got a, did you just get a dog? You have a puppy? That's on your Instagram? No. no, um, that was um a neighbor's dog, but I am thinking about getting a puppy because I think that that I mean that's one of the things that led to everything. I had a cat, um, I had a cat for nineteen year 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 years. Um, I adopted her in two thousand. Um, she was one year old, um, and then she saved my life. Like that was my first bout of bad depression. Like just to have her come home to each, um, and she was my friend. Um, and then when she died, um, I finally had to put her down um, a few years ago. Um, it broke my heart. I mean, I mean, I brought her to the vet. I was in the room with her. Um, I. I held her while they gave her the OS shot. Like she had real, 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 really bad things going on. But then I cried more then than I had at any funeral, any other time in my life. Like the snot and the tears. I mean, I almost got into an accident on, on the way home because I couldn't see. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, so it's been a while since I've seen Pan and puppies. Um, I love being around dogs. 
Um, cats. I, I, I mean, I, I, I love cats. So I'm looking around. <laughs> I love Wondering it. where life takes me. I love it. Well, uh, Chris, I really am grateful for you being on a podcast today and uh, and, and discussing your new book, Disconnected and Odyssey Through COVID America. Last question I ask this of all my guests, because uh, always imagine there is one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Chris? Oh, that's such a tough thing to answer. I would just say that that what the depression is telling you right now is such a distortion of reality that I understand completely where you're at. I, I understand that. I understand exactly that. Um, but I also know that it is a distortion of reality. So I'm going to ask you what one friend asked me a long time or 20 years ago, um, I was about to commit suicide. I reached out to my friend, Rachel. Um, I don't know why I reached out to her. Like I was set. I was going to kill my, my, myself. Um, and then she asked, and, and then she didn't try to talk me out of it. What she did is that she asked me to give her one more year. Um, it didn't make sense to me, but I've been through so much that for her, I could, I could do it. So that's what I would ask the person. I would be like, give me one more month. Give me one more year. Because in that month, in that year, the perspective that you have now um, is going to change. It's not going to be that timeless moment of that you're existing in right now. I love that. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 1-800-SYCIDE or 1-800-273-TALK or any of the other phone numbers are international. If you're in Poland, if you're in Budapest, if you're in Tijuana, wherever you are in the world, there are international suicide hotline phone numbers for you. And if you can't call, you can text, you can chat. There are online groups, call an enemy, talk to your baker, talk to somebody. Uh, they don't have to be a mental health professional. It just has to be somebody who's willing to listen uh, besides a bartender because then you end up drinking and then that becomes a comedy. We don't need all that trouble. Um, but but, but talk, talk, talk to the winos on the street. Talk to somebody. Uh, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one -on -one coaching with yours truly. And you can also go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo to start talking to a mental health professional within the next 48 hours. And with that betterhelp.com forward slash Leo, you'll get 10% off your first month of, uh, of therapy, of online therapy. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much, listeners. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thanks a lot, Chris. That, that, thanks a lot for having <laughs> Ah, thanks a lot for having me. I enjoyed, enjoyed, enjoyed it.